Welcome to the Mission Driven Leader, presented by TaleoConnects.com, where we explore the new, unknown, and innovative themes for work and give people the ability to show up resilient every day. Here are your hosts, former Chief Knowledge Officer of NASA, Ed Hoffman, and partner and Vice President of Portfolio Management at Taleo, Laurel Sim. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Leader. Ed, I am just I'm just so jacked because it's Friday and I get to spend it with you. How are you doing? Doing great. I'm excited because I know that you you get extra pumped for fantastic Fridays. So, yeah, uh, I'm expecting great things from you. Yeah, I, uh, I am a Friday kind of girl for sure. hundred yeah. um, percent. The, uh, the sun is shining where I am. So so I got that going for me as well because we've had a lot of rain. I, uh, I've got the, the sun is going too, and you reminded me that uh, I'm actually now living in farm country. So, uh, so I you're can't, uh, basically I a farmer. I still make jokes with you. Yeah. Um, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll make more fun of you now because you're almost a farmer. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm a <laughs> farmer who knows nothing about farming. <laughs> Ed, I'm super excited about our guest today, Matt, and I was wondering if you could uh, do a little introduction for us. Absolutely. So I've known uh, uh, I've known Matt now for a long time, uh, uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, Matt is the uh, he's the managing partner for Occasions, and uh, he's a leading uh, really advisor uh, to leaders, executives, managers, and individuals who are looking to present and to communicate and to influence outcomes in their direction. He's a co-author recently with Larry Prusak and myself on the SMART mission, NASA's lessons for managing knowledge, people, and projects. And he is also a uh, co-author with John Nefflinger, I believe, on Compelling People, a best-selling book a few years back on how do you use communications to influence uh, effectively and uh, the last thing is a background, uh, I would say, is that Matt and I really came together at NASA probably about two decades ago um, after the uh, Columbia disaster. We, we were working together on uh, helping NASA with issues around governance and uh, uh, some of the issues for being effective together. So a longtime colleague and partner, thrilled to be talking with you, Matt. Thanks both of you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, congratulations, Matt, on uh, writing a book with Ed. I can't, I can't imagine the uh, mission that would have been. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is it was almost like a quarantine project for us when it started. We did start in, I want to say, March or April of 2020 with our good friend and colleague, Larry Prusak. And for me, at least, it was a really fun process because we got to spend time together at a time when I wasn't seeing people socially at all. And our meetings around the book were really one of the highlights of that year. And I'm being completely genuine. I couldn't have had more fun doing this book than we did. It was really fun from start to finish. There were remarkably few bumps in the road. Well, wouldn't that be nice if we had uh, something during COVID where it could give us such a sparkle in, and uh, a lightning rod to our energy like Ed and Larry with you? That would have been fantastic. Well, I have to say also something I just you know, about this because um, I, I don't like to write. 
uh, and I, I like talking, I like presentations, I like doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, but when I had the opportunity to do the book with Larry and with Matt, it gave me the confidence and I found it a joy. I am surprised to say, but the fact we would have weekly meetings where we would just talk about stuff, talk about ideas. And, um, and this is the other thing I'll say about uh, Matt. Uh, when I was the director of the NASA Academy, I would always uh, work with Matt on ideas and concepts and possibilities. And I think I'm someone who has a lot of ideas, but what do they mean? How did they use them? How do you interpret that? Matt was one of the best people I ever worked with who could, you could have a conversation with Laurel and he would then kind of download it into a way that was smart, good, made sense. So uh, doing the book to me was, was just a pleasure because of that. Well, he sounds like a, you sound like a perfect partner, Matt. Uh, I'll give you a call later for our book. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed and I have a rhythm and I think we found that at NASA together and we had a real nice way of working. Whereas Ed said he would download to me and then I would in some way try to distill and it just continued here and having Larry in the mix just made it all that much more fun because Larry sees the world differently than Ed does and differently than I do. And so three of us brought a lot of really different perspectives to topics we'd all spent a lot of time working on and talking about for years. One of the interesting things that I found um, on, on your introduction is around influencing people and, and communicating with people. I think that um, what, what has brought on through COVID, and I think actually sometime prior to that with all these new leaders that maybe didn't have the capabilities yet to be in the roles that they were in, and performing at certain levels, uh, didn't realize the the requirement for good communication and and good understanding of of how to bring a group together and influence properly. What's your perspective on that? You know, it's interesting because I do think that in the past two plus years, in the virtual setting, people have had to be really intentional about their communication. And I was talking to somebody who is a very senior person in a large healthcare system, maybe nine months ago or so. And he said to me, people had to be more on point when they were making a business case and trying to influence people. If you were trying to bring your colleagues along on a decision to make a giant procurement decision or make a giant change management initiative, you really had to make the case more concisely, more clearly, and it required in some way greater intentionality, greater planning. And you, there was no room for slack as far as the way you did that. And I thought that was, I thought that was fundamentally right because we don't have these casual interactions with people because we can't have those little conversations where we buttonhole somebody in the hall and say, hey, I'd love to get your take about this. We have to do all of this stuff intentionally. And so, I do think we have to be much more intentional through all of our communication, whether it is larger group communication around a big idea or those one-on-ones that are still a critical part of the way we do this. I'm wondering, Matt. I just have, I have all okay. of these pictures. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna, you know, it, it, you know, uh, Laurel started with the importance of communications, which is probably smart because one of the questions we always seem to get when we're talking to organizations together, Matt, and our work is uh, what really is most important in terms of their issues. 
and uh, usually it's coming down to communications. And you worked on this. Uh, you did a uh, co-authored a book, Compelling People. What makes people compelling uh, so that people listen and uh, people are able to be influential? Well, you sort of hit the nail on the head with the question there where you said, what makes people want to listen to us? I remember you had a book that had a name sort of similar to that, uh, to this phrase, why should anyone listen to you? I think is the question I'm always asking. And social science gave my colleague John Neffinger and I some answers. And it re they really paralleled what we were seeing in our work with our early clients in KNP. And what we found was there's a two-part answer here. And it's based in something that social science calls social judgment theory. Part of what people want to see from us is that we know our stuff. We're capable. Maybe that's a matter of subject matter expertise or domain expertise, but it's also about our assertiveness there. So it's skill plus will. That's part of what people need to see from us is we can get things done. But the other side of the coin is that we understand other people and we have that sense of connection and warmth with them. Think of this as showing people that we share their concerns, their interests, or their emotions. And we have to be able to touch both of those qualities, both that sense of capability as well as that sense of connection to really to command people's attention in the way that we're talking about here. What makes people listen is, yes, I know something, I can make things happen, and I understand what you care about. That's sort of the back of the matchbook version of the answer. That uh, the, the connection parts for me, um, I, it feels so much more complicated than before because you don't, you know, how you were saying earlier, you don't get just to run into somebody. Do you have like certain tools in your kit that you give to people or recommend to people on, on how to build those connections when you only have them for half an hour and you only have them for an hour the following week and on and on and on. And yet you're trying to sell, sell the business case in order to get the work completed. Well, I think it's a matter of using everything you have in the toolkit. And let's be clear, there are no unique tools that I have access to that no one else has. I think it's a combination of when you're with people, that connection, a lot of that happens through validation. So when somebody makes a point or asks you a question, you always ask yourself, is there something here that I can validate that I genuinely do agree with or I genuinely have some shared interest or concern about? And starting there, the, a good way to think of that is connect first and then lead. And if you can always look for those points of shared connection in your communication, then I think that's a great starting point for this. I think the other thing then is thinking about what are all the communication channels that are available to you? And so there are things like we're doing, which is a video conference meeting, but then there's, hey, can I Slack this person or instant message them? or do we text with each other or can I occasionally pick up the phone and call this person? And thinking about all the different possible ways that you might have a quick touch with somebody. Because I do think that we still do have to have these one-on-ones and sometimes it's tricky to have to schedule every 15 minute call in your day. And I, and I know that some people's schedules come down that way. And yet I do think we still have to, in some way, try and make sure we do enough of what you might think of as that shuttle diplomacy, that one-on-one -on -one with people, so we can check in, 
see if we can build buy-in as we're moving toward trying to move a larger initiative that requires multiple people going in the same direction. You know, one of the things that, uh, that I've learned from you, uh, both when you were you know, coaching me in terms of presentations and getting my mind straight, but also with the students uh, that I've brought you to talk to at Columbia, is really the importance of the preparation time. That um, in order to know what you know, to be able to com com you know, communicate a sense of knowledge, but also to create a relationship, it takes uh, preparation time. And um, I, you know, I don't know what you would say about that, but I see that you spend a lot of time uh, with, with how do you get ready? How do you think about things? What are the four messages you want to say? How do you take the time to move forward? You know, Ed, you couldn't be more on the mark as far as preparation being such a huge part of improving communication skill. I don't know any substitute other than putting a lot of time into it. And I say this to clients and they roll their eyes, yeah. but that's yeah. how you get good at this. I think about communication skill, not unlike athletic ability or musical yeah. ability or speaking foreign languages. Sure, some people have more innate ability to throw a ball or speak a foreign language or to communicate their ideas successfully, but anyone can build skill in this area. And you do it through the same way you build your ability to play a violin or hit a baseball, which is through practice. And that deliberate practice is the thing that so few people really think about. And the ones who put in the time get good at this. And anyone you see who is a really good communicator in the public eye, chances are they put a whole lot of time into working on this. One of my favorite little anecdotes about that or just little factoids about this is that Martin Luther King Jr. took 12 different public speaking mm. courses in his wow. life. So this is a person who was both a preacher and raised in a tradition that valued oration and somebody who really, really valued its importance, understood its importance and put deliberate practice into this and worked at it. So not all of us <laughs> reach those heights or need to reach those heights, of course. But the idea that, hey, I'm going to work at this is something that I think a lot of people simply don't yeah. even think about when they ask themselves, how can I get better at this? Yeah, no, that really stood out to me in the work that you've done. And uh, I've been a part of that where, you know, I think I know what I'm going to say. I think I know how to I think I know how to create a likability thing. But if you don't think it through, if you don't prepare, if you don't take the time, it comes off, uh, you know, just off track. And I think that's such an important point that. My, my senses is often forgotten. You know, people think if they have the tools, if they know the process, that's all they need to do. But it's really doing it over and over again uh, for any kind of an activity or event. I think that's right. It is a habit. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, for sure. Um, it is a habit. And I think that, you know, if I reflect on where I'm at, I'm very comfortable speaking. I'm not as strong explaining it in the written word when it has to when I can't get in front of the person and it has to be communicated that way and and uh, it, and and most of the time I'm like well this is like so complicated and how can I get it in one paragraph so I don't lose their interest but still get enough information through and um, and and I do think that I need a lot of practice in that area of which it's like I feel like there's an nail going through my eyeball at the idea of having to practice to communicate um, in, in the written language, but maybe I'll try, maybe. 
Well, I'll offer a, an anecdote that gives you some sense of how I see practice time. Ed got me this opportunity years and years ago when we were working together at NASA, and it was to brief a very senior and elite group of engineers. Ed, this was the NESC. And this was shortly after the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill in June of 2010. Yeah. And I had done a little bit of a review of the lessons learned that the government, the US government had figured out in their report about the spill. And I consolidated this into something that was useful for NASA. And the leader of the NESC, who later became the chief engineer of NASA, invited me to brief a group of, I don't know, about 40 very elite, very senior engineers at NASA. I have never been more nervous <laughs> than trying to <laughs> brief these really, really sharp engineers at NASA on something related to oil product, oil drilling, which I'm not expert in and knew nothing about before I read this first report. And for a 40 minute briefing to them, in addition to coming up with a single page handout that I was gonna give them to look at as a, you, as, a, as a substitute for a slide, essentially, I spent eight hours preparing for that 40 minutes. Now, that was exceptional, and there are rarely times that I think any of us need to put that kind of time in because there was a lot of learning involved. But I think it gives you a sense of the way I see the importance of really knowing your stuff when the chips are down. Yeah, that's a great example. And, and again, you're a, you are a professional of professionals in terms of communication and doing what you do. And to take eight hours for a 40 minute presentation, uh, I think speaks volumes. My scariest presentation with which was with a bunch of nine year old or not grade nine girls. I was I, I was terrified. <laughs> I'd rather go in front of a bunch of engineers than those grade nine girls ever again. <laughs> that was I, I get that. <laughs> How much preparation time did you yeah. did you do for the uh, for the uh, nine year old girls, Laura? I uh, I. I probably did about four hours, which is oh, a lot for me. Okay, a lot, like yeah. after after I prepared, it, it 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 is a lot for me. I don't normally spend that much time, um, and and the entire time I was so fearful that I wouldn't figure out how to connect with them, and that that I was just another talking head, and I like I just I really wanted to be impactful on them, and it it's it literally stressed me right out, stressed me right out, That's, which is which I, yeah, I I have a hard time seeing you stressed out. You seem naturally just cool, calm, and collected. Yeah. 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 And naturally, I am. Yeah. But yeah, well, that's what. Throw me in a room with teenagers, I'll be a mess. That's what can happen. You know, I wanted to um, <laughs> pull back Matt to when we first started working together. Um, it was, an, looking back, it was really kind of a crazy opportunity. I sometimes wonder how we got asked to get involved with this. But after the NASA Columbia Space Shuttle disaster, um, new administrator who came on board was Mike Griffin. And uh, he said one of the things that I always respected uh, from his standpoint, he said he didn't want to move forward with ideas, changes, strategies to the NASA mission until we got good at the governance. Governance being how we decide, how we communicate, how we work together and all these kinds of factors. And I was asked to lead that team to write and prepare for the new strategic management and governance of NASA. And uh, you you were the person leading the uh, large parts of the writing of that 
project. What what do you remember about that? If if anything, it's been a while now. Well, you know what was most impressive to me about that was we, we were given limitations. Yeah. We were told we had to draft thirty pages or less. The previous version of this document had been hundreds of pages. I can't remember yeah. exactly how long, and I believe we had. At first, we were told we had 30 days, and I think we got 60 days or something like that. So yes. we had real serious limitations. It was a fire drill <laughs> in every sense of the word for us, and we worked some crazy hours. But what was really impressive to me was that at the end of it, NASA had a much flatter and much simpler governance structure. And there were, the language NASA used was governing councils. There were these governing councils that were in charge of making decisions. And I think when we started, there were something like 16 of these things. And when we were done, there were three of them. Yeah. And that made everything much more transparent, made it much easier to see how things were gonna get decided. And it also decentralized NASA in some way, and it really empowered the people doing the work to be much closer to the to the decision making that was happening at the at the end of the day, and so I look back at it on something that I probably got some of my earlier gray hairs from, but at the same time, it was a really powerful and motivating experience going forward. Yeah, it was to me. That's absolutely unbelievable. Sorry, Ed, um, to for an organization of that size to be able to become that. <laughs> Connected because that's that's what good governance does. It creates really, really strong connections if you do it properly versus layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. I'm that is amazing to me. It really, honestly, it really is. It, it also to me it points to the importance of really good leadership. Um, Mike Griffin was a very very smart, very intense leader, and uh, the previous strategy governance had been over two hundred pages and had taken about a year and a half. And I think when he said, I want this to be, uh, I think he said 30 pages or less, and you need to turn it around in uh, 60 days. I think my question was why? I mean, if no one else has ever done, I mean, I couldn't really imagine it. And, um, but that commitment from the leader saying we can do it this way, that this is a different way NASA is gonna operate. Uh, Rex Jevedon was a senior uh, associate administrator, I think at the time, was very engaged. He would come out and meet with us easily once a week in terms of what needed to be there, what he was looking for. Brian O'Connor, who headed up uh, the shuttle program for a period and was an astronaut and led safety at the time, had heavy focus on the importance of values driving these decisions. And I'd, I'd really, I don't think I've ever experienced a, a senior leadership that was so committed to something, but also driven towards us uh, getting it out in, in that time frame. It was, it was a remarkable time. I remember being with Rex and you on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> we were sitting there toiling away on Saturday afternoons yeah. through this. And that was one of my first experiences working with government. And I was just remember thinking no one would believe this is actually how government does its work. You know, this is, people are working hard. Yeah. And they're really serious and we're committed and really passionate about this. The, the, the concept around um, getting it done in 30 or 60 days and I only want it to be, you know, 30 pages or whatever it was. Often, and I, can't, I wish I could remember the book I read on this, but it, it, it's, it's about simplifying the process. Was it the smart Because mission? the more time you get, 
<laughs> well, the smart mission I haven't read yet because uh, I didn't get a preview. I'm waiting. August 2nd. August 2nd. Here it comes out. Um, but, but it's about simplifying the process. And the second you give people more time and more money, everything becomes more complicated because they, they need to validate why it took so long versus, hey, we can do something really smart and really, you know, connected in a short period of time if we just ask the right questions and are thoughtful about it. But then people are like, you, you only did 30 pages? Like, where's all the money that I spent? You're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Sorry. A lot of That's it sorry. probably came, I think, from the tech industry, right, where, where you're at, which is the importance of agility, the importance of trusting in your people, the importance of we don't have to have words. We, we're looking for outcomes. And, um, I, you know, I guess, you know, looking back on it, that's what certainly during that time, that's what Mike and Rex, the, that's what they were really about. Uh, we, we, we don't need a 200 page document that no one's going to read. We need a 30 page one that uh, that people are going to to use. Uh, I remember we had permit. We were encouraged to use pictures. I remember that. I mean, even cartoon like figures to make it accessible and readable. Uh, it's really remarkable. I, I wanted to segue. We worked together for that's now is about about a year or so on the book, the Smart Mission. What what stood out for you there, Matt, uh, in connection to uh, many of the examples were based on NASA, but also other organizations, modern kinds of issues and uh, from strategic management and governance, uh, what was that 15 years ago to the smart mission today? What what stood out for you in terms of lessons or, or key uh, key points? Well, you know, what stood out for me was that when we were talking to people for the book and doing some research and finding much newer cases and stories of people using the principles of the SMART mission, they were using the same fundamentals that we were talking about 15, 18 years ago, but they were doing it through the lens of today's technology and today's workspace. So one example that comes to mind was a project that came into being just as we were starting to write this book. It came and it went in 37 days. It was called Vital, and it was a project at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, which is one of NASA's centers. It's connected to the uh, California uh, Caltech. And they had, they were trying to figure out how can we help with COVID? Because the news of the pandemic had already hit there even before the real brunt of the impact was felt. And it was clear that there was going to be a worldwide need for ventilators and there were not going to be enough parts that were certified healthcare parts. And these engineers at NASA, people who worked on Mars rovers and things like that, got together and said, how can we build a prototype of a ventilator using commercial off-the-shelf parts that we can then share with the world so that people in Brazil and people in Thailand and wherever who need ventilators and are going to need to build these things can build them from a plan that we can share that's going to be up to snuff on a technical level and also using things that we know they'll be able to find. And so there was this project that took 37 days from 
people who knew nothing about ventilators to delivering a working prototype that passed tests that were set by healthcare experts and led to FDA approval of this device. And that project used the exact same principles that we talk about in the book around how we learn. I mean, these people learned in 37 days a lifetime about making a medical device so that they could do this. And I think of it as a really interesting analogy or in some way epitome of what the book's about because it shows that this idea that we have to learn rapidly, that we have to collaborate across divides, in that case, they were virtual divides. And a lot of the things around teaming that we talk about in the book were all epitomized in some way in this really remarkable project. Well, um, I, I have to tell you both that I'm very excited. You guys probably should have gave me a pre-read book. I'm not going to lie. Well, yeah, to I'm going to get you a pre-read. Yeah. I thought I it's did that. Too early, it's, it's too late. It's too late. I I I booked I booked it for yeah, August second. Yeah. I got my pre book. I'm waiting okay. patiently. Um, but I but I what I'm excited about for that book and and kind of what you're sharing here, Matt, is is really around the belief that we have to be open. But bottom line is you have every time you're listening, a you have to be active, but you have to be open to what you're hearing in order to. Um, connect with it and then move forward. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to learn those things as fast as you're learning them. You wouldn't be able to pivot as, and I don't actually love the word pivot because I think it gets overused. Um, but but in this situation, it's true. Like you have to, it, it's creating all of those those um, behaviors that are very in the moment and, and precise, if you will, because if you're not active listening, then you're not gonna be able to pivot. If you're not active listening, you're not gonna be able to learn quickly to move on quickly. Um, so, so that's what I'm really excited about. And uh, we'll, we'll still I get you an advanced exactly right. version, Laurel, so you can read it or <laughs> well, we'll read it to you. I would like it signed. Oh, absolutely. The, the, you know, the other thing about, I love that story about Vital and many of the other examples. To me, it comes down to, you know, when you have a team Nowadays, uh, teams are put together, so many projects with really talented people, expert people in all areas in accounting and in risk and the, the technologies and digitalization. And we hire people because of their expertise and we need to give them then that kind of autonomy to make the decisions to move forward, to be treated with respect uh, you know, as the individuals you know, that they are. And uh, to me, that's the thing that stood out about that story. but really the book as a whole is that, you know, we're about, we want to have purpose. We want to have a sense of mission. We want to improve things in society, but knowing that then we want to do the things that allow us to be more effective and to be smart and not to wait for permission for how to do things, uh, you know, from, you know, from, from places that don't have the expertise or the experience. So I think that was so much of what came through. Just so you guys both know, in case you're curious, I almost never had to wait for permission on anything. So maybe maybe there is a certain balance in there, but uh, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm on well, a how has journey. It, how has it worked for you? How has it worked for you? Not bad, not bad. Sometimes you're bad. A, Sometimes you're bad. in a great situation. <laughs> you're, a, you're a leader. Uh, you're, uh, yeah. 
True, true. Well, you know what, Matt, we're going to just take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, um, I I have a dying question that I need answered, which is what is your favorite snack? Because Ed's favorite snack is Mars bars. And he was thinking that it's because he's from NASA, but I suspect maybe it's for some other reason. So when we get back, we really want to know about your favorite snack. Fair enough. We'll get back to the rest of the episode in just a moment. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, TaleoConnects.com. As a manager, you know how important it is to solve issues right the first time. If you don't, you risk wasting precious time, money, and resources on things that could make the problem even worse. That is why at Taleo, we start by getting to the root cause of your specific problem so that together, we can implement the solution that gets you the results you are looking for the first time. Taleo's unique approach to management consulting and resourcing is focused on building a community of experts that work together to help clients solve complex problems and find success in their businesses. We work collaboratively with you to implement the solution that will solve the root cause of your problem, not just the symptoms of that problem. From management consulting and project management to staff augmentation and resource recruitment, Taleo's trusted team can help you take your organization to the next level. If you're interested in learning more about how Taleo can help you overcome your organization's obstacles and take your business to the next level, visit TaleoConnects.com today. Well, back back to the mission-driven leader with Matt. Matt, uh, I had that dying question of your favorite snack and, and the world needs to know. You know, I love the Mounds Bar. Mm-hmm. You got the coconut on the inside, the dark chocolate on the outside. Can't beat it. Coconut, yummy, yummy, yummy. You would think these companies would send us now Mars Bars and Mounds Bars, right? Or, I'm, I'm open, yeah. by the way, to change. If someone wants to send me <laughs> bars of candy or something like that, or. I'll, I'm open to explore new possibilities. That's really good of you. Yeah. yeah, that's really good of you, Ed. Okay, I'm going to change us for a second, and I'm going to be a little controversial. Um, you? Because controversial? I, I get, I know. Is this going to be about farms? That's all I'm going to say. Um, it might finish off with some farming. Okay. Um, <laughs> but so, so when you were talking about the social judgment theory, Matt, here's, here's my situation. Um, when I started off in, in my industry of computers and systems, I was almost always the only female in the room, and it was an all-boys club. And it was not to be rude on your hair color, Ed, but it was, it was the gray hairs in the room continually judging me and asking me to get the papers, you know, bring the coffee in. And, 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 that, and that's lasted my entire career um until i get until i establish myself and now i'm no longer seeing the old boys club now i'm seeing the young frat party um because now i'm part of the old boys club because i'm so old um and so now i'm feeling i'm 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 feeling like it's the same thing uh with the same generational behaviors it's like we haven't really evolved properly and when I, when I think about the social judgment theory and, and how I've been able to maybe break that glass is through the skill and the will. And I think more the will than the skill for me. But um, 
it pisses me right off. It pisses me right off because uh, um, we shouldn't we shouldn't have to fight as hard as what we do as the as the females in the room and 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 you know other minorities for sure. Um, so I'm just wondering your perspective on that and uh, you know correct me, <laughs> fix me, make me better. I'm glad you're asking Matt that question. So I won't say. <laughs> I mean that's what she said, right? You want to hear from Matt? There's, I think this is the at the heart of the book, actually, and it is actually the second section of the book deals with exactly this question, not just around gender, but around stereotypes in all kinds of different ways. You're absolutely right. Look, I'm not going to tell you anything about your lived experience. You know this. You, you face this stereotype and this backlash around this through your career and you figured out how to maneuver it in some way that's worked very well for you obviously but you are absolutely right that this is one of the fundamental challenges about how this social judgment theory works just a little sidebar about that two of the people who wrote the seminal paper in this a woman named susan fisk at princeton and amy cuddy from harvard business school they were writing this to figure out the question of how people made social stereotypes, uh, use social stereotypes at work. And so it was really actually addressing this very head on. And this is something that everybody who's not from, quote, the dominant group figures out in their own way. I'm not going to overgeneralize about other people's experience here. Uh, but I do think that this is fundamentally one of the biggest challenges for people in workplaces today is how do we decide the extent to which we're going to buck these stereotypes that people hold uh, up against us uh, and figure out what we're going to, how we're going to maneuver around these things or how we're going to reject them or how we're going to in some way break through. And there's a, there's a whole lot to say about it around gender as well as around race, uh, gender identification, uh, sexual orientation, dis physical ability or disability, age, their body type, all these things are figure into the judgments people make about each other. And it's, it's complicated. <laughs> let's, let's just put it that way. It is complicated. And it's, um, I, I guess I'm at that point in my career where um, I, at a certain points, I ask myself, do I have the energy to put in right now for the social theory, right? Like the skill then will, because it's like, if you don't, if you brought me in, then why don't you just see my value? Why do I have to defend every component of it? Well, you have your, your, your personal party over there. Like it just, I, um, and this is where the donkeys come in. So now, so I, you know, I, I'm like, well, I knew the donkeys you know, were going to be needs... showing up someplace. They were going to, they were they... going to, yeah, there you go. Where else do you get this? But they are, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the, you know, I, I say, well, quit being a donkey, but let's not, let's not, you know, distract from what a really great donkey is. A donkey is that is actually there to protect right there to they they're put in like with a herd of horses to protect from the from the um the the cats like we've got big cougars out this way ed wow. and so you put a donkey in with the horses to protect the horse and so i, I called them donkeys yeah wow. yeah 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 see there you go i'm i'm just farming you up every yeah. day um 
And so, so when I call them donkeys, you know, we have other terms for donkeys that people use on a regular basis, but it's these people that choose to protect their area and they see me as the cougar, which I, we shouldn't call me a cougar often. Uh, that's not as, as appropriate. Um, <laughs> but you know, they see me as the cougar coming in yeah. and until I prove to them that I'm just another, um, you know, another donkey, kitty cat, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. until I can prove that they've got their hinds up to kick and, and protect. And, and, uh, and I just, I wish there was a faster, more productive, um, way to to yeah. come into organizations because like you Matt I could excuse me <clears throat> I consult on a regular basis I'm changing organizations daily weekly and the faster that we can become a cohesive team um, the faster we get results so it, it just it frustrates me these donkeys it's actually <laughs> it's an interesting point I mean when you started talking about donkeys I didn't know where we were going to go but one of the things that I think, and it's connected again to this notion of a smart mission, you know, a, a lot of what we've we've worked on and that we still do is the ability to trust people. That if you've really done a good job of identifying talent and expertise, um, how do you build your team? How do you help it continue to grow? How do you promote conversations and and, and the importance of communication? How do you get all of these things out there? And if you do, then you can trust more innovation. Right. You can you can trust doing things differently. But one of the things that I see is we've we've come from a society where for a long time the key goal wasn't leadership, it was management. And the emphasis of management was to control. Don't let things get out of hand. So now you're in 2022 uh, and you're dealing with, uh, you know, epidemics and you're dealing with climate, you're dealing with technology and you're dealing with people working from all over and uh, basically the VUCA environment is one of you cannot control it. You really need to provide the leadership, the exchange, the conversation and the trust for the ability to innovate. So um, the donkey, as you're describing it, is the desire to control things, make sure thing, you know, keep, you know, make sure that we're, we're doing things the right way. But in an environment of rapid change, uh, probably different ways it needs to to operate. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving too much thought to the donkey metaphor, but I really I got excited about it. So let me go somewhere else with that, Laurel, and I'll share. <laughs> Get us away from barnyard animals for a second here. <laughs> And just share one insight from the book, and it's based in the research around this. And uh, this, I'm going to just, again, share the social science here, and uh, please don't shoot the messenger. But this speaks to generalizations about men and women around demonstrating capability versus demonstrating warmth or connection. There are presumptions around men and women in the United States and Canada. I'm just going to generalize about our cultures and leave it to others to do the same about theirs, that men are presumed to be strong and capable. And what men are not supposed to do, the stereotype they're not supposed to violate is weakness. The presumption for women is one of connection or warmth. And the stereotype they're supposed to not violate is the opposite, is, is coldness. And this is, there's something called 
a stereotype backlash effect that happens here. And what you see is uh, in many settings, and Sheryl Sandberg wrote very clearly about this in Lean In, when women demonstrate tons of capability, they can come up against this backlash where they're seen as not one. And when you think about the women that you admire, the women who have transcended this, they've broken the glass, and you can pick your own exemplars. I have my, I think I of have Laurel, my own list in my you, head. But you asked me about women I admire, so. <laughs> Thank you. When you think about people who do this well, the difference I think you'll fundamentally see between the men who do this and the women who do this is the women who do this are incredibly connected. They demonstrate a ton of this warmth or sense of connection because they're keenly aware of this double standard. This is not a level playing field, it's not fair, and yet they know that in order to thrive, they don't turn their strength down, they turn their warmth up. And so again, think about the people you would call these really incredibly uh, admirable women leaders at any level in any kind of uh, setting. Chances are, if you close your eyes and imagine this person, you have this very, this feeling of their charisma. And they have to, in some way, turn the dials differently than men do yeah. because of this stereotype backlash effect. That's the, that's the answer in the, in the research. How, how that's done, I think, is where it becomes very much one person does it one way, one person does it another way. And so you hack the code according to your own skills and abilities and strengths. Also makes me think, I, uh, oh, go ahead, Laura. No, please. Makes me think that, you know, again, the importance of stories. We've talked a lot about that uh, in previous sessions, but one of the things that you've spent a lot of time on uh, when we were at NASA until today is the use of case studies, which when I think about it, and you, you can take it in, in your direction, is that really a case from an organization is a short story that gives license to how we want to behave, what our norms are, what our values are. And so getting cases right become kind of illustrative for giving the ability to be the kind of talent, be the kind of leader that we want to be. Uh, you know, it, how do you see case studies, uh, you know, in terms of, of why they're used, what they're used, and, and the importance of them, Matt? I see them as a great teaching tool for content that is in some way complex and needs to be conveyed in a way to a lot of people without it just being a data dump. So where there's a lot of context and there's a lot of complexity around the either the organization or the dynamics among people, there can even be complexity around the technical decisions that need to be made. But it's a way to capture some of that context and complexity and story is the most efficient way to do that. And, you know, Ed, when I think about the work that we did developing cases at NASA, one of the things that I always thought was the most valuable about that was to develop these teaching cases, not unlike what you'd see at a top tier business school, where you talk to different people within the organization and get one person's perspective who maybe worked in the program or project side, another person who maybe worked in safety and mission assurance, and maybe yet another person who worked just on the engineering side, and you'd get these different perspectives and they would disagree vehemently about something either being ready or not ready or safe or not safe. And getting those perspectives and 
trying to tell a story that then left the reader or the person who was in some sort of a conversation about this case saying, huh, how would I deal with this in that setting? I, to me, that still remains the gold standard for sparking dialogue along the lines of what we've tried to draw out in the SMART mission. Yeah. Again, the, the conversation, the good case, the good uh, story becomes an invitation to let's talk about this. And how do we how do we learn? How do we get better? I do find that uh, you have to use the case studies in, in at the right point in time, and that's why I appreciated the the comment you made around learning. You know, at what point at what point do you engage the case study? Because if you bring the case study in before you allow all the people to, whether it be vent or chatter amongst themselves and and create their own voices. They, sometimes the case study can box a conversation in. So if we, if we allow the collaboration, allow the conversation to happen first, and then everybody's kind of got their voices on the table being heard, okay, now let's see what other groups are doing and where do you see yourself fitting in from what we heard you say? And I think that it's very important to have that balance um, of both. I don't know, what are your thoughts, Matt? I think you're right. Timing is essential when you're teaching anything. People have to be primed in some way to learn. And there are lots of different things that can prime them in that way. Sometimes it's something like an event, like a, an accident or a failure that wakes people up and opens them up to learning. Other times it's a matter of their readiness because of other social factors or context in the organization that allows them to open their ears and their eyes. So I think you, you're, you're right on. And I think when it's more in a strictly academic setting, the teacher has to in some way sequence a curriculum, for instance, so that you get to the case at the right, right point in time. But in an organization, it's more thinking about, well, where is this happening relative to the ongoing work that a team might be doing? I um I also wanted to go back to the um, bring the strength down and the warmth up for a quick second because um, then I was reflecting not only on on the the females or actually I just look at all leaders I don't I don't kind of break it down from one to another it's just people that down that I see in my community that make me want to continue to strive to do better um, and and. The strength is almost always their behavior, almost always their behavior. Yeah, that's not at all what I meant to suggest, and I hope I didn't say that. I, I said what they don't do is turn the strength down. What they do do is turn the warmth up. Yeah, sorry, so, yeah. yeah. So, okay, yeah, so I okay, guess yeah. what I'm seeing yeah. more is I'm seeing yeah. the warmth. I'm seeing the almost the right. charisma, the, the listening, the curiosity, like all of those things that allow people the openness and comfort and 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 to be comfortable in situations right the 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 strength part has to exist in order for you to be comfortable creating that space for people right um exactly so i guess yeah. it's just it's um n not the domineering effect when i when i was kind of looking at it from that perspective um mine is my uh i tend to use humor and um curiosity as my way in for conversations and um, and I and I find that I ignore comments that might 
create biases or or could potentially create bad behaviors because I'm completely indifferent to the to the silliness of it, um, except for on days I'm exhausted, right? Or except for when I've had my fill for the week, uh, those types of things. And I, and I, I think people really need to be self-aware when they're walking into something like that, that if they can't bring that warmth up for the day or that the energy, whatever side it is that they need up for the day, if they can't bring it up, what do they do then? Do they just kind of sit back, <laughs> be a wallflower like what is it that you would recommend in those situations because you can't be on every day no you're right and there's a resilience question here because if you're constantly feeling like you're not being your authentic self in some way then you're going to burn out and i do think that it's when you think about presence presence isn't something that somebody has 24 7. it's something that you have to summon for moments where your presence is required. And I'll just share this quick anecdote. I remember watching a presidential debate in the studio when it was held at a university I was working at it at the time. And there were all these presidential candidates and as soon as they would break away to commercial break, the lights would go off on their faces <laughs> in the sense that all that charisma that was beaming out when the cameras were on them would just drain away. And so I do think it is worth realizing that presence is something that we can in some way summon our energy for and then conserve it. And I guess my suggestion around that is as hard as this is, we sort of need to look at our calendars and say, okay, I'm going to need an extra dose of this at, on Friday at 345. And because I know that's the end of the week, I'm going to have to conserve some of that energy and keep an extra espresso ready to go at 330 so that I have that at that moment, because I don't know any other good way to do this other than thinking about it almost as conserving my energy. And, and this is where, again, this is a double standard. And the fact that you're thinking about this as a woman who has to do this balancing act that men don't have to do, let's just call it out for what it is, which is an unlevel playing field here that's frankly unfair. Yeah, it's uh, I, but I love the. In, it is unfair, but I'm over it because uh, I because I'm a good little feisty girl. Um, but but what's interesting in in that comment, and I'm curious what you do, Ed, is I actually know that um, when I go to a conference, for example, that I have to have high energy. People expect Laurel Sims energy because she's pretty. Um, flamboyant, if you will. And so so when I'm at a conference speaking, the energy's up all the time, all the time. And I am like the second I go to open my hotel room dorm, I'm like, <sighs> like exhaust, completely and utterly exhausted. And I always leave myself an extra day in the hotel to rest before I head back, because otherwise, when I get back, I'm just as exhausted, if not more. Um, because because I, I knew that I had to put it all out there for everybody else. Um, so, Ed, do you yeah. have any kind of things that it's you do in order question. to keep it? It's an interesting question. I think that I probably started heavily with the warmth, with the relationship. I mean, one of the things I've heard a lot is appreciation for being genuine, being authentic, uh, being someone who puts us at ease. And um, so I think I, I probably kind of always you know, had that as my core go-to. And so it's a natural tendency. And um, I probably, frankly, I've had advantages of I've been branded nicely 
uh, having uh, you know gone to Columbia University, when I started working at NASA, people thought that I was smart. Uh, and in my earlier couple years, I tried to be very quiet because I did not want to say anything to dispel that. If you believe that the degree, you know, kind of does that. Uh, coming from NASA, uh, there's a sense it's a good brand that uh, you must know something. So uh, I don't know if it's because of that, but I think I probably usually I lead, if you will, if it's the proper term, uh, Matt, for with, with warmth with sensitivity, with a focus on people, with, I, I believe if, if we take care of each other, then we can solve everything else. Uh, and that's, I think, what I've probably always tried to teach folks uh, in courses that uh, take care of your people and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through anything uh, because I believe we come in with our natural talent. So I, I think that's how I probably approach things. Uh, and I try to be appreciative uh, when I give talks or when I, I I, I thank people because I'm enjoying it. You know, I think that's exactly how all of us tend to be. We have one of these qualities that yeah. comes more naturally to us. Either we tend to lead with our capability first or we lead with that sense of warmth and connection. And to me, it's almost just like being left-handed or right-handed. There's nothing right or wrong about it. And the question is, whichever one of those set of muscles is not the one you prefer to go to immediately, can you at least be coordinated enough so that when you pick something up with both hands, you don't drop yeah. it? And you know you get over the threshold with the thing that doesn't come as your first instinct. And, and that I think that you can be a good leader having either of those as your default, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman or whatever you bring to the table. I've seen all, all the various combinations over the years in some way. And I do think that it's really a matter of knowing yourself and understanding, oh, I do tend to lead from that emotion first place, or I really do tend to show my expertise first, and then realizing that it's not always going to work as the right way to approach every conversation and being able to be emotionally intelligent and tailor as needed when the circumstances call for it. That, uh, I love the image that you gave me about, you know, left-handed, right-handed, or picking it up together, right? Like that, that's actually it in a nutshell. Um, just, just using whatever strength you've got at the time that you're going to need it. Yeah, we pick our brands. Um, I think, you know, that's, you know, it's part of this preparation thing is that yeah. you need to be conscious of, you know, what is it you're committed to? I mean, one of the things that politicians get into trouble for is that on stage they're one thing, then off the stage there's something else, and then and and I think that loses it if there's not a consistency there. Uh, you know, when I whenever I see Laurel, I, I I expect energy, uh, positivity, which you know I mean sometimes you probably don't want to give that. You know, when I'm working with you, Matt, I know there'll be thoughtfulness, there'll be a concern for for working things uh, fairly and and with equity, and so. I think we tend to, you know, I guess stereotype people that we know along these lines. But I think uh, that could be a good thing is that we we present ourselves the, the way we want to be presented uh, on a consistent path. I think that's right. And, you know, I'll just share one reflection of my own over the years of having been doing this work with clients is it also changed the way I saw myself. And I'm a fairly cerebral person. I've learned that about myself through this work. And you know, I referred to the research studies before that informed some of the work that I do with clients. 
I'm that guy who reads, <laughs> reads the papers and cites the research. That's not everybody's thing. That's not the way, right way to approach a lot of conversations. And it's something I have to know about myself that that's a fairly cerebral way to inter interact with people. And so knowing that I've worked on becoming a more warm and approachable and connected person because I saw the limitations, quite honestly, of my default. All of us have these defaults that are just who we are. And I think that to a certain extent, there's a tension between being our authentic selves and also being adaptable and thinking to ourselves, where can I grow? Where can I add skill as a communicator that's gonna push me out of my comfort zone, whether that means I'm an introvert who has to push a little harder to be out there in front of people or a cerebral person who has to work on being more connected or whatever your, your defaults and your challenges are. I think it's worth thinking about where you're willing to push outside of that comfort zone. Is there, is there any things that have ever, where you've, you've um, said, you know, this is, this is where I'm a little delinquent um, and you tried to make the adjustment and it, and it just, it, it went flat and you said, you know what, I'm okay being delinquent in this area and moved on. Is there anything like that that's come up for either of you in the past? Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, yeah, my, uh, my story, I don't know if it's true, maybe it's junk, but I said I missed two weeks in fourth grade learning fractions and I never got, and I never got math after that. And uh, I just got to the point where I'm okay with that. I don't know if that's what you're looking you for. You worked but... at NASA and you never got yeah, fractions, yeah. right? No, I, uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. but it is, I, uh, it is, I'm, it is, it is what yeah, I'm I mean, talking about. It's, yeah. How did I get like... into NASA, really? I mean, I'm not, uh, Good with my hands. I'm not good at engineering. I'm not good at math. But you know, you bring in uh, you're being a horse of the of a different color. If it's you know, if it's bringing something to larger, I think works well. So I got comfortable with that after a while. Well, good. Good thing in NASA's hey, HR. Absolutely. It's yeah. Good that, it's, I, it's good that that's behind you. Till, how did I get here? I, that's that's my line. How did I get into <laughs> Columbia? You know, so. <laughs> be quiet about it. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I have some deficits in that area as well. And it's not surprising we like each other. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sitting there doing differential equations <laughs> together. But, yeah. you know, I, I would say that there are things that as a communicator, I'm not as strong at. And I've said, okay, that's never going to be my bag. And, you know, one of the guys I work with just has a thousand watts of energy. Actually, both of both John Neffinger and my other partner, Seth Pendleton, have just energy I've never had. And I'll go into a room with the two of them and people will gravitate to them in a way that's just like moth to a flame because they are so plugged in and they just have this almost glow about them and realizing, hey, you know, that's not yeah. me. I bring something different to conversations with people and being OK with that. It's something that I'm, you know, I am who I am and I'm going to always have a lower wattage than they do. And that doesn't mean I can't still be a useful light in some closet somewhere. That's right. I think, I think the, the key is being okay with yourself. And I, and I would love for, you know, uh, for people, if, if they take something away from today is, is to be okay with yourself. Like look at your deficits, look at the things that, that you're not strong in 
and and you you can practice them still practice them but if at a certain point it's like you know what i'm okay that you know like i hate reading um dry dry you know data documents uh oh so it, it ends up where we started with just you know i saw so well since we're recording i got to ask you that question i think you're the only friend that i know that got into harvard that so what did you learn at harvard <laughs> well, I snuck in the side door at Harvard because I got into a mid-career program yeah. there in the Kennedy School, which I learned a lot from. But, you know, to be completely honest about it, what I did learn was I was in a program with people from 80 plus different countries. And I just learned to be a good listener yeah. at Harvard. Honestly, one thing that it really changed for me was just being somebody who could really just sit back and listen and try and absorb as much as I could from people from such diverse backgrounds and such diverse professional circumstances. And so if anything, it just helped me become that much better a listener. To listen, yeah, to, to get that. I, um, yeah, no, I, I, I thank you for that. Yeah, no, that's quite a, quite an accomplishment. And as we've worked together, you, you pointed to different ideas. I know the work of Joe Nye and on power, one of the things we've talked about over the years. So, uh, well. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I worked with Joe Nye when he wrote a book called Soft Power. And Soft Power, for those of you listening to this, is the power of attracting people to your position rather than either forcing them with coercion or bribing them with carrot, with, you know, with carrots, essentially. And Nye's made a tremendous impact on the world of foreign affairs around this idea of how to use influence and set the agenda and move people through things like values and culture. I think on a personal level, I realized years later that a lot of the work I'm doing is really very parallel to that, yeah. this whole idea of understanding that balance between your capability, your ability to execute, but then this sense of connection or warmth it really is how do you exercise soft power as an individual as opposed to a nation state. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's funny how these things come, right? We, we, we follow our own paths at different times. My doctorate was around participative forms of leadership. And uh, you never get away from it, these, these things that you study. So much of it is yep. about the collaboration, the participation, the engagement, conversation. So that, that, that's very interesting. Laura? Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I took my own coffee break that time. Sorry for that. I pulled the um, plug. Matt, I was... We're, did you see that? I pulled the yeah, plug. You did. You, you lit it. Yeah, you just ruined me. Yeah. Um, Matt, we're actually getting... Unfortunately, we're getting close to the end of our chat here. But one of the things that we always like to ask our um, guests is, what is your superpower and, and, and how do you personally water that power um, in order to make sure that it's, it's ready to perform uh, as you expect it to? You know, I think, gosh, this is a hard one. I think the thing that I keep doing is that I keep learning and I keep committed to learning. And so I'm always pushing myself to learn something, even if it has nothing to do with what I'm doing during my working day. And so the ability to just keep accruing new knowledge and learning is the thing that I do that I think keeps me relevant and keeps me fresh in what I do. 
And I do it by doing things outside of work and forcing myself to learn things that are really not even that easy or that I'm not even particularly very good at. Is that by reading them? Is that by doing an activity? What, what, does, what does that look like? Yeah, some of it's reading, but I'll give you another example. I used to be a professional musician and I played the bass primarily. And since COVID, I've been teaching myself jazz guitar and I'm not really good at it, but every day I play for an hour or so and I push myself to learn things that I didn't know before. And I find that it expands my neuroplasticity. It makes yeah. me think about things a little differently than I did before I started doing this. And sure enough, it's getting easier after a couple of years too. That's fantastic. Uh, Ed, do you play any musical instruments? Um, I, I used to play the drums in school, and, but I was told I was too loud. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, but I was a- Every drummer's yeah, too I was, loud. Yeah, <laughs> I was a drummer. That's. And I just kept being told, can you play lower? And uh, play the, uh, the drums. I, I studied piano when I was young. And I tried to pick up the guitar, but I didn't, I didn't stay to it. I would have loved to have actually stayed with that for a while. But probably drums is the, uh, the instrument that if I had to go to, I would play. Very cool. What well, about you, Matt, um, the, the what's, idea. What's your instrument? Oh, I never. I, I, my voice, my voice. Ah. Yeah, my voice. I did sing, I did sing um, when I was young. And, but then I was, you know, never um, as good as some of the other people. So then I just stopped. I'm like, no, if I'm going to put the time in and, and, and really put the energy into it, uh, it has to be rewarding on the other end. And it was never rewarding enough what because was I wasn't good song? enough at it. What was your go-to song? Uh, well, well, I went, you know, I, I was a churchgoer, so um, Hallelujah was always a big favorite okay. for me. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I can yeah, hear there you. There you go. It wasn't one of, you know, those songs that I was singing earlier to you a couple episodes ago, like Baby Got Back. <laughs> no, funny. different. Yeah, different. But it um, is a song by a great comedian. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, um, so so thank you so much for, for um, that kind of um, picture into what the greatness of Matt is, because I, I do think that there's a lot to be learned about um, being uncomfortable and, and trying new things on an ongoing basis. And I, in fact, do that quite regularly with all of my nieces and nephews. They're like, well, Auntie Lou, which is my nickname, Auntie Lou will always say yes. Like she might not know how to do it and she might not like it, but she'll always say yes to us. And they're right, because I'm like, well, uh, you know, as long as I don't break bones, we should all come out of this okay. Um, but I don't, I, I question if I would do that without them. You know, they're kind of my, my uh, igniter, if you will. And, and I don't know if the flame would rise as high without them forcing it on me. I would like to believe so, but they sure do a great job. <laughs> that's, that's why they love their Aunt Lou. That's right. A little bit of Lou. Key. Being around we'll people do. who uh, open yeah. us up, engage. But yeah, no, I've had a wonderful. Yes. I always do yes. with Matt. I uh, loved uh, the working together with you at NASA, and then uh, getting back a couple of years ago has been really uh, joyful for me. So I love your insights and and the exchange and the fun. So thank you for uh, your time today. Yeah. Thank you so oh, much, Matt. Mutual. 
Thanks and so just much. so well, you know, nice to connect. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. I, uh, I just wanted to let you know that anybody that comments on our podcast will be receiving um, the Smart Mission book when it comes out. And for the entire season of our podcast, each of the speakers, not that you'll need one, will be getting uh, your book, The Smart Mission, when it comes out. So we're, we've got such pride for what you guys have accomplished, and, and we know it's going to be fantastic. So, um, Well, thank you so much. Oh, it's been my real pleasure to talk with both of you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Do take care. Thanks for listening to the Mission Driven Leader Podcast presented by TaleoConnects.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. Production of the podcast is by At Heart Creative and can be found at atheartcreative.com.